one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Chico, Lennox avec Gabriel Jesus, Ravi Chaka, Suisse à Rater, Rodegaard. Oh oui, le but somptueux de Martin Rodegaard. Le coup de canon du capitaine norvégien. Arsenal avait besoin de se rassurer. Arsenal avait besoin de frapper un grand coup. Et c'est son capitaine, Martin Odegaard. Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you, Andrew. The goodly morning mugs are out in force. Yes. Across the world. Quite right, too. Uh, yeah. It's, feel, it's great. I really, really, really loved that yesterday. I really loved that, too. I, you know, I had heart palpitations and all the rest, but I had a feeling about this game. I... I I just had a feeling on on Saturday night, going into Sunday morning, I had this most vivid dream where Alan Shearer stole my golf clubs. Right. And Mikel Arteta was furious about this. He was absolutely incandescent with rage. Mm -hmm. And we were all staying in this sort of big hotel, very fancy hotel, and Arteta wanted to Basically, he wanted to get Shearer because he'd stolen my golf clubs. But the hotel wow. blocked off a section so nobody could get to Alan Shearer. And he was sitting there, smug as you like, with, you know, my Mizunos. And nobody could do anything about it. And what were you saying to Mikel? Were you like, hey, Mikel, take it easy. It's just some golf clubs. He's no, I was, I was going, fucking get him. Let's, let's have him here. You can't, okay. you can't do that. I got the golf bag back, but he'd actually just stolen the clubs out of the bag. Wow. But then what happened was I thought, oh, no, this is, gonna, this is like an omen. This is Newcastle are going to steal points from us today. Mm. However, the next bit of the dream was that a massive bear ripped Shearer's head off and the bear got 1,000 XP, you know, like in a video game. 1,000 experience <laughs> points. It flashed up on the screen. And it was a terrifying bear as well. Do you ever see that film with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin? And they get stranded somewhere in Alaska and they're being chased around by a big fucking bear. I it, haven't, but I really want to. Yeah, it's quite a, it. quite a good film. I can't remember what it's called. The The Big Bear or something. I don't know. Sure. But it was a very, very terrifying bear. And Shearer paid the price for his pilferous ways. And I felt like going into this game, that was a good omen for Arsenal. Yes. Well, I can see 
I can see the logic there. Uh, and and so Shearer was beheaded in the dream by a bear. Literally ripped his head off. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it wasn't a good day for Alan Shearer. It wasn't. Not quite as bad as that. <laughs> he still has his <laughs> but, head, even though he did he, appear to lose it at one point. He did lose his head on the, the Premier League coverage of the game. Yeah. So, wow, what foresight you have, Andrew. And you did always have conviction. I, I think I texted you before the game mm. saying, oh, I don't, you know, I really don't feel good about this one. I, I was looking at it. I've always had it down as a game where we might drop points, yeah. but you had that sense that they might be out for revenge. I did. I mean, it was, I think this is a really fascinating part of, of this game and, and also this season. Because I, I watched Arteta's press conference on Friday and he was asked a couple of times about last season's game. And he was like, no, this is a different game, different players. You know, he was in a difficult mood, wasn't he? He was. What I could see. He was. Um, but I think that might have been him just saying, right, I'm going to play my cards really close to my chest here. Yeah. I'm not giving anything away. Um, you know, and, the, and the, the number of times he was asked about, you know, would pain be a motivation? He was going, oh, we've got enough motivation as it is. What happened last year was last year. This is a different game. We've got to just go out and do better, all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I had a deep suspicion that this was him ensuring that he didn't add fuel to the fire. Because, you know, St. James's Park is a difficult place to go. Mm-hmm. They were up for it yesterday. Why not? They're having a great season. You know, this was a chance maybe to properly secure Champions League football next year. So they had a huge amount to play for. He knew the crowd were going to be up for it. I think maybe the Anfield stuff was playing in his mind a little bit as well in that, you know, the, he talked up that as a venue that was difficult. So he was really, really, really deliberately playing down any idea of revenge. So there's none of these like back page headlines on a Saturday night, Arsenal out for revenge against Newcastle, blah, blah, blah. Because yeah. all that does is just wind everybody up, you know, and we know, we know that, um, you know, Mikel Arteta has used motivational words to get our, our own fans up and our own supporters behind the team before games. So super cautious. And then, of course, if you if you yeah. use your press conference to give the team their team talk, you may inadvertently give the opposition theirs. Exactly, exactly. So it was fascinating. Afterwards, Aaron Ramsdale comes out and says, "Yeah, he showed us a clip of." Uh, all or nothing just before the game. This Arteta said, uh, you know, in the press conference, no, nah, I've never I've never watched it. I don't I don't know what clip that is. Uh, haven't watched the documentary. And then, of course, he pulls out this clip of the documentary, and afterwards he said, yeah, the players were out for revenge. Mm-hmm. So uh, even in the context of this game, when you think about some of the other games, first game of the season against Crystal Palace, difficult away game. I'm not saying it was a revenge fixture, but it was one where we had to put something right from the season before. You know, we were beaten comprehensively uh, at Crystal Palace last season. We won 3-0. Brentford away. We all know what happened on the first game of, of last season, all the singing and the dancing and all the rest of it. Difficult night for Arsenal. We had a nice kick around with the boys at Brentford. Mm-hmm. Um White Hart Lane, a really painful, difficult game last season, one we we absolutely used the motivation for to put things right. And I think it was right in the hearts and minds of the players and the staff and the manager yesterday to put right what happened at Newcastle last year. And I think that played a big part in 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 how we how we approached this game, but also how we managed this game during the ninety minutes. I do, yeah. I think that's absolutely spot on. And do you know there's some sort of eerie parallels actually with the Tottenham game, I thought, in that 
2-0 win away from home. Goalkeeper had to make a number of good saves. I think I'm right in saying Odegaard scored from outside the box and the second goal came off an own goal. Yeah, we had a comment like that on our Discord from Kari who said, it's not a question, but interesting that our two infamous away defeats from last season were this season 2-0 two nil, uh, nil wins with Odegaard scoring from outside the box and also an, uh, an own goal. So, yeah. nice. Yeah. Some, some parallels there. And this capacity to exact revenge on people is uh, much to my taste. I look forward to our home and away double over Manchester City next season. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I really thought this was a brilliant win. I, I think it may be our best result of the season. Mm. Um, it's certainly up there, you know, with things like Spurs away, uh, maybe the home win over United and a couple of others. But I, with the pressure on, you know, the title race uh, sort of on the line. I think it had we failed to win yesterday, I think most people would have declared it over. Yeah. Or certainly it would have felt like it was would have taken just a complete catastrophe on City's part. Um, and I think the way we play, the, the nature of the result keeps the belief alive and, yeah, just showed once again that this team can respond to adversity and I think that what we've seen from this from them this season is not a mirage you know they are sure. the real deal and I think I think they're they're not going anywhere in a hurry this season or, or next yeah I think the the way in which we stood up to the way Newcastle played and we're allowed to play I think it's fair to say that the two things are, are important Newcastle mm-hmm. we know they're strong we know they're physical we know they're quick but at the same time, the job of the referee is to ensure that when fouls are made, that, it, you know, if there's um, the sort of fouls that we saw in this game yesterday, the cards are issued, which prevents a team or certain players from continuing to play the way that they played. And I thought this was a fascinating aspect of this game in that we stood up for ourselves because we had to, because there were moments where I think some of the physicality of Newcastle was over the top. Uh, the referee didn't do anything about it uh, or didn't do much about it. Um, and we had to we had to cope with that. We had to live with that. But what I liked was the way we stood up for ourselves without going over the edge. Like, I won't lie, at the end of the my halftime tweet said, somebody, somebody give Granit Xhaka Xanax uh, because, you know, he was he was in that zone. But, you know, I'll doff my cap to him. He... He rode that line perfectly, perfectly. And there well, was we a- nearly got a goal out of it, to be honest. Yeah. They lost their concentration right at the end of the first half, and you know we might well have scored. And I think a really good example of this is is there was a moment, this, is, this sort of all happened after, remember Xhaka went down on the edge of our box. He was hurt, or he, it was game management, whatever way you want to look at it. He went down. Callum Wilson started to get a bit annoyed by this, and there was a bit mm. of argy-bargy and pushing and shoving and all the rest of it. And there was a moment where I think we put the ball out for Xhaka to get treatment, and Newcastle, rather than giving us the ball back to feet, played it out for a throw just Ooh, down yeah. the line, right? So that sparked another little bit of of aggro or feistiness between the two sets of players because that you know is a little bit fucking cunty from Newcastle right that's not what you should do but they did it and we had to live with it so there was there was a brilliant bit uh, and I'm sure you remember it's Kieran Trippier and Gabriel Jesus who are sort of 
arguing the toss over this and it, it's getting a bit feisty and it's coming towards the end of the half and we have a throw in and Jesus says, you know, you can see him going, G- give me the ball, give me the ball, just throw it towards me. And he backs in and he counts on Trippier, you know, being wound up to the point where he's just going to clatter him. He'll take the clatter. He'll get the free kick. Arsenal win the free kick, eases the pressure. And that the way that we manage those situations, I think, was really, really impressive because yeah. there have been questions about our temperament or, you know, our ability to deal with things in game the way the, the way that we should. And I think we did it perfectly yesterday. And I was so impressed by that. And I think when you talk about this being one of the best results of the season and one of the best performances of the season, I think that aspect of it, you know, on top of some of the great football that we played is really foundational for the way this team needs to operate going forward. You know, don't get sucked in, don't rise to the bait, deal with it in the way that we dealt with it. And, and, you know, I think, uh, the, the players and the manager deserve a lot of credit for the, for the way that played out yesterday. Definitely. And listen, to an extent, we played Newcastle at their own game. We spoke about revenge for the away game last season. Yeah. You know, Mikel Arteta might as well have shown them the 34 minutes that the ball wasn't in play at the Emirates <laughs> Stadium in the previous game this season. You know, the the time wasting, the play acting that Newcastle produced in the reverse fixture to get themselves a point was infuriating. And yeah. I don't know about you, but I took a great deal of satisfaction from us going there and doing precisely the same thing to them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we've got a question about that in, in part two, just to sort of expand on that uh, part of the discussion. Yeah. But I mean, it's quite something, isn't it, for Eddie Howe to talk about being frustrated at, at how little the ball was in play. It's like, have you got the memory of a goldfish? You, you know, what's going on here? You did this in January. You can't then bitch and moan when somebody does it right back to you. So No, and to be fair, I saw quotes from Dan Byrne who basically said, you know, we kind of did this to them in January, so we've got to live with it when other teams do it to us. So oh. undermined by his own players in that respect. And I think, just a side note on Newcastle, when they were taken over, I think, uh, I, I doubt I was alone in sort of having that slight sense of conflict because Newcastle were a club that, I didn't sort of have any great dislike for, you know, they uh, I had positive memories of them from the nineties and the Kevin Keegan teams and associations with great atmosphere and uh, attractive football and you mm. know, really good fan base. And then they were taken over by the big baddies. And I kind of thought, Oh, I wonder how, you know, how easy it's going to be to dislike them and what they do. And they're making it pretty easy right now. They are quite a nasty team. I think, and uh, they are sort of transfiguring, transmorphing into the kind of uh, nemesis supervillain of the Mm. Premier League pretty seamlessly at this point. Yeah, all aboard the fucking Newcastle hate train, folks, because, you know, look, I I think there's something to the idea that they are perceived as an English or typically British team in, in that they're allowed to play in a certain way. I know they don't have all English players or anything like it, but the uh, English manager, English manager you know, that this, yeah. And this idea that there's so, sort of like a plucky little regional team that's, that's come good for, you know, reasons that nobody can really explain doesn't stack up, but I don't think, uh, particularly yesterday, that the referee managed that game as as well as he should have in terms of their physicality. And look, if you want to play that way, by all means, it's within your rights to play that way. It is the job of referees to deal with that. And I think 
Yeah. We were probably a little bit lucky that nobody got injured yesterday because what happens when when teams feel emboldened to make tackle after tackle, strong tackle after strong tackle, is that inevitably it might take, you know, a half a second or a split second of, of mistiming something and somebody gets really hurt. The I thought the uh, the, the 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 Achilles, the uh, Gimarish on Saka's Achilles was nasty. He knew exactly what he was doing there. But there were others as well, Fabian Schaar. The way he went through on Granite Xhaka that time, um, which I think Granite Xhaka did not forget, and I'll explain to you why in a little in a little while. You know, there was just a sort of continuous elbow uh, on Jesus, a, as well. elbow on Jesus. Joe Linton did an elbow or a shoulder on Xhaka in a set piece in in the second half, which Xhaka took ex- uh, exception to. You know, little things like play on the edge if you want, but like you you sort of. You have it's got to, to be policed, hasn't it? By well, the it has to be policed, but also if that's the way that you're going to play, expect to be judged by fans of other teams who come up against you. If you're putting it about and, you know, the the way that we dealt with it was the way we dealt with it. If if that frustrates you more than, you know, your physicality, then that's, you know, I can I can understand why Newcastle fans love it, right? You know, everyone loves a bit of physicality in the game. Everyone loves to be strong. You don't want to be bullied. You don't want to be kicked around. But, you know, you you make your bed, you're going to have to lie in it at some point. Yeah. And, and, and it was, I thought, shocking that Bruno went through that game without a booking. I mean, oh. there were about three fouls in the first half alone that I thought he could get mm. a yellow card for. Um, so, yeah, I was disappointed in, in that side of it, the officiating. But let's, let's come to the game now. Mm. And, and I suppose, speaking about the physicality, that was the discussion we had last week. How do you... What do you do in midfield to yeah. cope with what they offer? And Arteta made a, a bold choice because he went with Jorginho. Again, I thought this was really interesting as well when he talked about this afterwards. And he talked about trying to find the the balance between the physicality of Newcastle and, you know, how do you combat that? Do you go like two ends of a, a battery do you you know fight fire with fire mm. or do you do it a different way and he said there were question marks because it was going to be really physical you want to go physicality against physicality we'd have no chance to win the game which i don't know if that says something about um, the way he views thomas Partey at this moment he said so we had to try something different Jorginho understood the game really well he's a really intelligent player he gave a lot of security to the team he dominated the game in many moments and i have to say i did have some worries about Jorginho going into this game, not on a technical level, because I think you you don't have the career he's had and you don't win the things he's won, um, you know, without being a really excellent uh, technical player. The question was, could he deal with the physicality? And I thought he he did it really well. There were moments where he used his experience to to just win us free kicks. You know, there was a great header, wasn't there, in our box where he got there, won the header, and then, you know, flung himself platoon style through the air to make sure that the referee saw the contact. We get the free kick, takes the sting out of the game a little bit. You know, I do think it was a, you know, a brave decision or a relatively brave decision from Arteta, but it was one that it was one that that paid off handsomely because I thought Jorginho was absolutely outstanding. Yeah, it was a really good decision. And I think we both said, you know, we'd be tempted to go with party because of the physical approach. Um, but Arteta, you know, I mean, that's why he's paid the big money, I guess. He, he, he thought about it in a different way and said, 
we want to go and play a, a different kind of game. Mm. Credit to Lewis Ambrose, actually, on the preview pod, who spoke about this. I was yeah. listening to that and said he would do precisely this, you know, play the player that he thinks might give us some semblance of control in there. Um, he's also the player who's just more informed of the two. I think that's, yeah, a good point. And I, I think that's a big factor. But Jorginho was excellent. I thought he really justified his place. I thought he looked like a leader out there. Mm. And there are lots of ways in which you can lead a team, but he was doing a lot of the obvious ones. You know, there's, he was doing a lot of communication, a lot of talking, um, some really smart decisions in terms of buying free kicks or just buying time for his team. Uh, yeah, we really, really, really saw the benefit of his experience. Yeah. And you can see, I think you can see as well how much his teammates trust him. Like oh, they, yeah. they give him the ball without a second's thought. They make a run when he's in possession. Uh, I think he's very highly rated in that dressing room. And I think that's quite quickly become an influential figure. So mm. credit to Arteta. He, he made the right call there. And, you know, the other ones, I think Martinelli coming in for Trossard, I think most people assume that would be the case. And keeping Kivior in mm. after you know the Chelsea match, I thought that was also the right call. And you know, when you win, yeah. you get it all right. Well, I mean, I think the, the only the only possible issue with the Kivior selection would have been if Gabriel wasn't fit, but he was fit. Yeah. Yeah. I thought there was a very interesting moment about five or six minutes in because you know our start to the game, first ten minutes wasn't great. I thought we were a little bit sloppy on the ball, but there was a little break in play and immediately Arteta and Jorginho were having a confab on the sideline about something. Um, I mean, fine. I, I think that well, start, like just to mention on that start, it was intense. You know, that atmosphere, I wasn't there, but even through the TV, it was loud. Like it's, a, it's an intimidating place to play. And actually, I was really struck by that. Jorginho, I don't know if you saw this, but he gave an interview yeah. to Match of the Day after the game. And he said, he spoke about the atmosphere and said, you have to relish that, that kind of thing. If that's, you don't, you're yeah. in the wrong sport. That's what he said on Sky afterwards as well. They were is asking it? about the atmosphere and he said, I loved it. It was, you know, this is what this is what it's about, you know, to play in, in these kinds of atmospheres. It was very interesting as well to hear, you know, Arsenal first 60 seconds, I think we're all right. We pinged the ball around a little bit. Gary Neville said, Arsenal have started really brightly here. Mm. Newcastle hit the post and like immediately he's like, Arsenal have had a terrible start here. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I meant analysis, I guess. But yeah, I, I do think that, when you're playing in an atmosphere like that um, against a team who are really revved up, I mean, we went through some of their results on the last show, but they've been flying of late. Sometimes you do just have to survive and in that opening period and maybe you take a bit of luck along the way. I mean, Spurs were about 5-0 down by that point in the game, you know, <laughs> and admittedly that's Spurs. But I think we did have to ride our luck a bit and sort of ride uh, the wave of, he had a cup final feel, especially with the national anthem before as well. It really was like a big occasion. And I, I agree, we were shaky and we were sloppy, but we had to survive it and we did. And, and you know, obviously they hit the post, there's the penalty appeal. And maybe that's a really pivotal moment. I've spoken before about how much these VAR overturns, I think, can swing a game or change the ambience, change the mood of a crowd. I think, you know, when we look back at it, that decision being overturned was a critical, critical moment in the game. Not just mm. what it meant in terms of the scoreline, but I think it probably did alter the mood and just give us that bit of belief that maybe, you know, it was going to be our day. 
Yeah, maybe so. It looked to me in real time like a penalty. I can see why, you know, the referee gave it. Um, you know, I don't think he was good yesterday, but at least, you know, they got that decision that decision right. I mean, it took yeah. them long enough, but the right decision was made. And from there, you know, within three or four minutes, it's 1-0 to Arsenal. So, yeah, that that really did swing, didn't it? It's... Um, it's, it's, I don't want to say scary, but I do wonder what it would have been like if we'd gone uh, behind very early on to that Murphy shot or yeah. or that penalty, you know, considering how we've been a bit wobbly, it's fair to say, in, in some recent games. And, you know, just when it comes to the belief and confidence you need to get through a game like this, does that get shattered if you concede that early goal? Um, fine margins, really fine margins. Uh, Absolutely. We've been this on the other end. Yeah. Fine margins. You know, we talk about it as a great result, but it's not like we went there and completely dominated the entire thing and outplayed them. This was a really closely fought contest that was decided by what happened in the penalty boxes, you know, and... Mm. Ultimately, we took our some of our chances. We might well have scored more on the day, uh, and they weren't able to. And that, you know, that was really uh, the difference. But I agree with you. First goal in a game like this is absolutely huge, and massive credit to Martin Odegaard, who I thought in the first half was imperious. He was brilliant, and he yeah. was so on it. And if anyone was going to make the breakthrough for Arsenal, it was going to be him. I mean, he's having a hell of a week or has had a hell of a week, hasn't he? After two goals against Chelsea, a goal yesterday. I thought he was, like you, and I'm sure everybody listening to this, I thought he was absolutely outstanding in that first half. It's a great hit. You know, it's probably one of those where we might ask a question of our goalkeeper if it goes in like that, but... I think um, it, goes, it goes through defender's legs, doesn't it? So I guess he doesn't see it all the way. Yeah. Um, but a really clean hit. I mean, we know his technique's good, but... Mm. 15 I, goals I, now. 15 goals. I think yeah, I read I think somewhere... Goes further out than you think. You yeah, know, it is. It's well outside the D. Um, yeah. I think I read somewhere that that equals the record for the most outfield, uh, non-penalty goals from a midfielder in, in the Premier League. 15, wow. You know. Because, yeah, I think... It, it matches Sesk's uh, highest tally as a midfield player at Arsenal, but I imagine mm. he was probably on penalties at that time. Uh, so to score that many from open play is that's outrageous, really. It is. I mean, it's a it's a brilliant return from you know from a player who the conversation not too long ago was like, can he deliver? Can he deliver goals? Like, I'm sure we had this conversation before the season. Like, what are you looking for from Martin mm. Odegaard? And you're saying, well, you know, if he can get seven to ten goals. In the season, you know, that'd be brilliant. And it's 15 on top of seven assists or whatever it was. And he could have had he could have had another assist or two to his name yesterday. He made that pass for Martinelli to go through. Um, these, Great move as well. He, yeah. he, he had that moment early in the move, I think, where kind of takes the ball on his chest and then knocks it out to the right back off the outside of his foot. Just... That was superb, you know, Zidane-esque. That moment. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the things about Odegaard that doesn't really get talked about is the way he receives the ball. The, mm. the positioning of his body when he is receiving the ball is absolutely top class because normally, 
you know, nine times out of ten, he is receiving the ball either on the half turn or he's able to play a pass. Um, you know, his his close control is generally perfect. There was one where he picked up a pass in midfield. And I think Gary Neville just said, oh, that's brilliant from Odegaard. And he just made it look simple. But what it was was a a, a pass drilled into him when we were trying to play out from the back. And the way he received the ball and then moved it on allowed us to find that space to get out, you know, as Newcastle were pressing. And, you know, when we talk about his goal scoring, we talk about his creativity. Um, what's the old, the word, the, the technical security, if you like, uh, that he gives us is, is fantastic. The two chances, you know, that we had from the two wide players who've been so brilliant for us this season, Martinelli and, and Saka, what's your take yeah. on those where I think – Pope makes, you know, he's there and he makes the saves, but I don't think either of those players will be happy with the finishes that they executed. Yeah, I, I think I think on the Saka one, Pope does pretty well because he just doesn't come and it, it forces Saka to mm. take a decision earlier than he might like and from further out, you know, there's, there's no sort of great angle for him. Um mm. I think a lot of times keepers rush out early and commit and then the, the striker's mind is sort of made up for them. Whereas here it was like, go on then, beat me from 18 yards if yeah. you fancy, uh, which, you know, he couldn't do. And I think keeping the shot down probably would have been his best bet. The Martinelli yeah. one, mm, yeah, I think, he, I think he could probably do better there. It's, it's on his left foot, isn't it? I no, think. I don't think oh, so. Is it so it's, it's on his right foot. Um or maybe it's just sort of the outside of the boot. I'm, not, I'm watching it again now. Yeah, he so doesn't... here we go. It's a Zinchenko, Odegaard. How many times have we seen that into the channel? Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I think Martinelli could do better there. I think he could. I think, he, you know, he's well capable of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, and listen, he made a big contribution on the day. Even mm. before this, he made a brilliant tackle inside his own box to bail Zinchenko out. Um, but I, I was watching this and thinking, wow, in a game this big, do you get two opportunities to run clear of the defence mm. like that? And, you know, how much might we sure. suffer for not taking those chances? And even before half time, you know, there was, there was another massive opportunity. There was. Before that, though, Aaron Ramsdale had to make a very good save from from Joe Willock. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, they're, uh, you know, denying the narrative of the former player scoring against his old club, of course, but a really good save uh, from Ramsdale. And then you're talking about the late chance in the half from, from Odegaard after, after Newcastle, I think had gotten a bit rattled by all that sort of aggro that they'd started because of the way Xhaka sat down and not giving the ball back and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, they were rattled and we had that chance right at the end of the, uh, right at the end of the half. This one, I think is an absolutely brilliant save. I think mm -hmm. it's really top-class goalkeeping. I don't know. I mean, Odegaard obviously can do something different, but you can understand what he's trying to do there. It's on his right foot. Um, I think it's a really brilliant piece of goalkeeping, to be honest. Yeah, he looks to reverse it back into the mm. that corner. Maybe, maybe he can go uh, open his foot out and go to the other side, but it's a brilliant save. You know, I think there were two... Two good goalkeepers on display yesterday. Uh, even if you might look at Pope for the for the first, um, 
it's just a shame this one didn't go in because I actually thought the way Arsenal worked it, yeah, you know, from inside the penalty box, Saka bringing it down, and and a really nice little reverse pass from Martinelli uh, would have and. The way Odegaard sits the guy down, it would have been a beautiful, yeah. beautiful goal. And the timing of it as well would have been incredible. Yeah. You know, given yeah. given the halftime whistle would have gone just afterwards and, you know, to sort That's of... it. I was sort of really delighted to be ahead, but I was a little bit gutted to be, for it that it was only 1-0. Yeah. yeah, I think we had we had the chances to be further ahead in, in that first half. No question. Mm. Um, and very early in the second half, there were a couple of moments where that could have come back to, to haunt us because Isaac hit the post. Um, I mean, the, the synchronicity between the first half and the second half in that sense, where they hit the, the post early on uh, in both halves. And then there was a, then there was a, the, the save, the Ramsdale save from, from Shar. Uh, no, that was that was only a couple of minutes later. Yeah, it was. Um, not even a minute, maybe less, because uh, well, maybe a bit, because there was a, a free kick and they had to line up the free kick. But uh, that's a huge save from Ramsdale at that moment in the game. Um, it is. I mean, it's a completely free header. Um, yes, six yards out, and you know, if he finds the, maybe not even the corner, if he finds a couple of yards, you know. Some keepers wouldn't even react to that, I think, at that proximity. Yeah. So it's a great reaction and a strong hand at a critical time in the game. But, I mean, if you're a Newcastle fan, you're probably thinking he absolutely has to score from that position. Maybe um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're not, we're not Newcastle fans, so yeah. I think we can give our, our goalkeeper the, the kudos. Okay. Um, Alexander Zinchenko, who we've talked about quite a bit, I think had a difficult period in that in that second half from a defensive point of view. Yes. He had a couple of slips and you know Murphy got the cross in a bit too easily which allowed Isaac to to hit the post and uh, I think it was his foul on the edge of the box which led to the free kick that we just mm. talked about. Um Mikel Arteta reacted yeah, another call he got right on the day. Yeah, and he, sure. he brought Kieran Tierney on. Uh, Tierney was getting ready to come on. Uh, they showed him on the sideline in the 58th minute. It took a uh, took a few minutes because play continued, and there was a, a passage of play that is going to get a lot of replays. There's probably a lot of GIFs and TikToks and all kinds of stuff regarding Granit Xhaka chasing back from midway into the Newcastle half, all the way into our box to make the most immaculately timed sliding challenge on Joe Willock, who was about to pull the trigger. And, you know, from that distance out, I'm not saying Aaron Ramsdale couldn't have made another great save, but you would back a player to score in that position. It's amazing defending from Granit Xhaka. It is, yeah. And, you know, an incredible intervention and the athleticism he shows, it's funny, athleticism is not a word we always use with regards to Granit Xhaka because maybe he's not the most nimble, most agile or the quickest, but he is an absolute machine in terms of his stamina and his power. I think, you know, on a day where Arsenal went with Jorginho and had Odegaard in the midfield with him, Xhaka was the player who I think did sort of stand up to Arsenal from a physical perspective in that midfield, to Newcastle rather, mm. from a physical perspective in the midfield who could sort of go shoulder to shoulder with them. And 
I don't think it's a coincidence he ended up on the ground about half a dozen times because of it. I'm sure some of that was gamesmanship, but there were some pretty meaty challenges on him too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to to make that tackle, I thought it was just outstanding covering. And yeah, in, in, a, in a brilliant season that he's had, that was actually one of his finest moments. It really was absolutely uh, brilliant and well worth a watch if you can find it doing the rounds on, on social media. So we brought Tierney on. I thought Tierney was good. Um, he was. There were a couple of moments then. Newcastle made some changes as well. Uh, we hit the bar, by the way. As oh, well, yes, in Martinelli, Martinelli. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a lovely curled effort. It really was. And then there were a couple of moments again when Newcastle's physicality were probably a bit too far in the box. We talked about Shaka. Uh, getting a whack from Joe Linton, and um, it's one of those because it happens in a, a sea of bodies, the melee of pushing and shoving from a corner kick or a free kick or whatever it was, but Shaka didn't like it. And then there's the Fabian Schaar one on Gabriel Jesus, which I think is he's very, very lucky to have avoided any kind of card whatsoever. It was one of those where if it's not red, it's what did Wenger used to say? Dark orange. <laughs> yes it's very clear what he's trying to do I think uh, and what's in his mind there and may and I think Gabriel is just maybe a bit lucky that it wasn't more serious mm. and, and and if it was probably the red does come out but the intent was absolutely there um, there was even another Guimaraes tackle on Jorginho that I was yes. again staggered wasn't a booking yeah they got away with a lot and as they as the game and the time the clock ran down and, you know, the game sort of got away from them, there was a lot of frustration on that pitch from the No, I think so. You know, when 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 you like I said earlier though, like when you feel emboldened and you add that frustration to it, it can boil over a little bit. And I think the the Fabian Shah challenge on Jesus was potentially a, a jawbreaker if it had been, you know, a couple of inches higher. Um he certainly left it on him deliberately. But of course, had he been sent off he would not have been able to make his finest contribution to the game, which was <laughs> which was uh, the own goal. Now, this began with a really good Kieran Tierney interception. And we yeah. played the ball from, I think, Jesus to Martinelli. Martinelli into the box. Um, he's crossing it for uh, maybe for Martin Odegaard. Certainly Odegaard is free at the back post. Sharp puts out a leg. Sticks it in the back of the net. It's 2-0 to Arsenal. And I don't know if you noticed this or if you picked this up on on the the tally, but there's a moment where as the players are celebrating in the in the corner, Shaka runs over, and I think what he says is Dale la puta madre. And it basically means I think it basically means Take that, you son of a bitch, <laughs> which is going to make the next Swiss international camp a little bit interesting. Whether he meant it specifically at Char or at Newcastle as a whole, I don't quite know. But it was very interesting. He's coming over and he's speaking, you know, Spanish uh, to Martinelli. Then he gave it a big vamos as they celebrated. So I wonder, is there like a, a sort of Mikel Arteta school of Spanish swearing on the on the training ground? Shaq is just preparing himself for his summer move to Real Madrid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did actually pick that up, the Puta Madre thing, and was like, yeah, that's interesting. But um, yeah, great. I mean, couldn't happen to a worst person and I thoroughly enjoyed it um, 
And brilliant run, I thought, from Martinelli. You know, yeah. 70 minutes played at that point in the game. And, you know, at first you're thinking, well, he's doing really well. He's sort of alleviating pressure here. And he really makes something out of it. Mm. Uh, forces the own goal. And uh, I thought it was excellent. So, and that was a massive moment because, you know, had Newcastle got one back, I don't want to think about what that last 20 <laughs> minutes would have been like. Um, yeah incredibly stressful it was stressful enough as it was without yeah. newcastle being particularly threatening it was still very very stressful i posted a instagram story of my heart rate um taken by my garmin watch and um, in the last sort of 15 minutes of the game it's like you know yeah. it's really uh, the, going the thing is that they're, they're very solid and they're very they can be very direct and very effective but they're not I don't think they're a team blessed with loads of craft in the final third. So Not yet, yeah. Not yet. So it's not like they were carving us open, but it was just such a high-wire act, you know, such a fine line that we were living by at 1-0. Um, and that 2-0 brought uh, some... I mean, comfort. Uh, given events of recent weeks, not total comfort. No, not but- total comfort, but some, for sure. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I do think we dealt with the last part of the game very well. I know they pressed and the, the the game momentum, game state ensured that they had lots of territory. There were lots of corners and free kicks or, you know, it felt like that anyway. But there was a solidity to our back four, protected then with, you know, Partey had come on to give us a bit more physical presence. You know, Kivior and Gabriel were, were dealing with things Ben White made a tackle at one point. He slid in. They got yeah. a corner, but he was, you know, celebrating the tackle. Screamed, I think <laughs> he really did. Yeah, he was loving it. Uh, and there was a there was another one. I they they did they had a corner from, I guess it was their left hand side, and I think it was whoever the left back had come on. Was it Target? Is that his yeah, name? Matt Target. Yeah. Matt Target came on. He, he he floated one in, and then the next time they got one Trippier came over to to do one of those in swingers that he's very good at his delivery is very good there's no two ways about it but Ramsdale just came and claimed mm. and took the ball and I think that really cemented the kind of defensive performance that Arsenal put in yesterday you know when we needed to be organized and compact and solid we were when we needed our goalkeeper to step up and and do things he was there I thought our central defenders Kivior we talked about this um, on WhatsApp. I was talking to you about that video, you know, where that that little bit of sharpness that he has over the first three or four yards was evident a couple of times yesterday, where he just has this, uh, you know, quickness of movement and, and the way he reads the game to nick in and just get the ball away. Um, you know, I, I felt, despite the fact that I was obviously slightly terrified because of the importance of the game and, and, and what it would mean, I didn't feel massively concerned about what Newcastle were doing or our ability to cope with it. No, and it was second versus third away from home. Yeah. It was never going to be a walk in the park. So these big games are about surviving those moments and winning those fine margins, and we did do that. And I actually think on another day, we might have scored one or two more with the chances that we made. Um, I think we made the better chances largely and more of them so yeah it, it i liked the final period you know 
Ramsdale didn't just come and claim a cross. He also then fell to the ground and took about 10 seconds getting back up and then deliberated over his goal kick. And I know it's infuriating for the opposition, but if you can't beat them, join them. You know, plenty of teams have done it to us and, you know, we needed to do that in those moments to to get through them. And uh, I, I thought the team showed a maturity in that. Yeah, I agree. You know, the, the, the blip in form that we've had at, you know, a really difficult time or unfortunate time is really only that, the only blip that we've we've really had this season. You know, I think when you look across um, the season as a whole, of course there are games where we could have done better. Of course there are moments where individuals or collectively we could have been better. You know, we all know what those are, but those are generally always going to happen in a season when, um, you know, when the stakes are high or whatever it is, there are going to be games where it just doesn't go your way. But for the most part, I think the team has shown, you know, consistency and progress and development. And um, this was a really big win, you know, against a team that were out for very important points for their own uh, motivation and for their own season. But I think as well, you know, Newcastle might have been looking at this saying, you know, okay, we're not at Man City's level yet, is anybody at Man City's level, but let's show that we can do it against the team that is second best and has Mm -hmm. been, you know, top of the table. What a statement win that would have been for Newcastle as well. So all of these things that we had to contend with, the motivation of of the opposition, um, the difficulty of the fixture, you know, some absences, the team, you know, having to deal with with certain things, I think they deserve massive credit, you know, and, and this last week, when I looked at it on paper, Chelsea, then Newcastle away, like I'm, I, I try and be optimistic, but there's also part of my brain that goes, ooh, I could see how that's going to be tough. I can see how that might be difficult. Five goals scored, one conceded, clean sheet away from home. Like, I don't, you couldn't ask for, for much more from this particular week. No, no. And, and I, I didn't feel good about this fixture at any point, really. And mm. so... I was really pleasantly surprised by the fact that we won. And, you know, we're now 16 points clear of Newcastle. I believe that's second place uh, secured as a minimum, which, you know, I think is significant. I think we've shown ourselves to be comfortably clear of the rest of the pack, the only team in proximity to Manchester City this season. And I think more so than that, there was kind of a... I think the last week, the wins over Chelsea and Newcastle have really restored people's faith. You know, the team had a little wobble before the Man City game and during the Man City game. And maybe our faith wavers and wobbles too Mm. during that. But winning this match in the fashion that they did, I do think has left everyone with a really positive feeling. And, you know, all we could ask after losing the Etihad was keep City honest, make them work until the finish line. Yeah. And we, we know, we've kept alive our chances of doing that. We look like we might be on course to do that. And um, if City, I think if City are forced to win all their remaining games or three, you know, three of their four games, whatever it might take, then I think most of us can live with that because they will have produced a frankly absurd run. Yeah. Um, but we have shown that we basically showed who we are. 
in these matches. No, I and- agree. And and like the the blips and and the bits that didn't go well are the things you improve on next season. Those are yeah. the those but, are the but, things. You know, yeah. everyone, the thing is, I I know what you mean, but like even the blips they weren't that bad. Do you know what I mean? Like we haven't had we have had an outstanding season. I'm looking at this record, played 35, 125. Like it's extraordinary. 81 mm. points with three games to go. We could match our Premier League record points tally which I think was achieved by the Invincibles so yeah yeah, I I think I I felt very proud of the way the team played and I feel very proud of the way they've played across the course of the season obviously I still hold out hope for the the dream ending and those hopes were kind of emboldened a little bit by by this win but Mm. regardless I think I'll be very proud of them coming in this season for sure me too me too and look all we could do after the last couple of weeks was get going again and win and hope that distractions of Champions League or, or whatever else, you know, a miracle result here or there might come our way. It's not beyond the realms of possibility. It's unlikely, but we, as you say, have had to do it. That's that's the only thing we could do, you know, um, just make sure that you keep pace, put a little bit of pressure on and see what happens. Yeah, look. Um, We've got three games left, two at home. City have got four games left, three away. One is sandwiched between a Champions League semi-final against Real Madrid. Mm. It's not. It's not impossible. No, it's not. <laughs> look and look. Why the fuck can't we just? You know, at this point in the season, it's the eighth of May. Why can't we just dream a little bit anyway? Why not? You yeah, know, you've got to, You know, we've said the whole way. We've got to enjoy it. What, now because we're second, we don't enjoy it? Nah. Like, <laughs> I know. I know what you mean. I know what you like, mean. like, you know, we're still in the mix. Look, and, I, and it's, it's, yeah, yeah it, it's, do you know what? It's so interesting. I was going to say, like, before the um, blip, as uh, let's call it, thoughts of the title, like, were occupying me every day. Like, it's amazing how the brain works because in that period, mm. like, every second thought was like, Arsenal might win the league. You know, every time we won a game, I was like, well, when we, when we win the league, this will, you know, we'll look back on sure. this. I couldn't get away from it. And then after we lost to Man City in kind of the week or 10 days that followed, I don't know how the, my brain managed to do this, but I barely thought about it at all. It was like I put it away in a box and suddenly I was like, well, you know, take each game as it comes. And uh, mm. I, don't, I don't even like football that much anyway, actually. I'm not really that keen. <laughs> it's a coping mechanism, James. Everyone has their own coping mechanism. So like, exactly. if, if you're not enjoying this now, that's fine as well. But, you know, I, I have to say that, that I'm, I'm, I'm taking so many more positives than negatives from this season Um and, and the problem now is that now that we've won at Newcastle, all those thoughts of the title have come flooding back into my brain. So um, there you go. The brain's capacity to kind of put things away and mm. open that drawer again as soon as they think, ooh, ooh, ooh maybe. <laughs> ooh, that was the noise I made looking at the fixtures after we won that match. Ooh. ooh okay, ooh. well, let's hope we've got a few more oohs yeah, to go be- uh, between now maybe. and the end of, of the season. You never know. You never know. All right. Will we take a break? Because we've got some questions and stuff. So I, I think we should... Uh, Let's do it. Grab a little cuppa. We'll take your questions and more in part two right after this. Hold up. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, all right. Let's okay. do it. Um, this question is from the Discord, and it's from Jorisal. Jorisal. I don't know. Okay. They say... Uh, I think we showed a lot of progress by winning a game like that. Everyone likes young, new talents, but does this show you also need to have some older, experienced players? Jorginho is brilliant, and I think we underestimate what those kinds of players mean for a group. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's sort of self-evident in a way, isn't it, that you do benefit from having experience in your team it's great to i mean the thing is right when you are a young team and when you're when you're a rebuilding project which we are or have been right the obvious way is to start young so you get a lot of players in around the same age so they can grow and develop together Mm -hmm. but the glue of those has got to be some players with experience who've got the ability to understand the game, how to manage certain moments. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really important. And I think our experienced players yesterday, um, I include Jesus, Jorginho, Shaka, absolutely were vital to the way that we played and, and the result that we got. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, 
I think that, you know, in January, we brought in a lot of experience in Jorginho and also Trossard. Mm -hmm. Trossard's 28 years old. He's been playing first team football for a decade. And I think that experience and cool headedness has shown in him at times this season. Mm. Uh, I think there is certainly a place for it. I suppose one of my questions to you would be, you know, Arsenal have adopted a, apart from that January window, a, a heavily kind of youth-based transfer strategy. Uh, as the club gears up for the Champions League next season, do you think there's any merit at looking at players in an older age bracket as well um, to supplement the young group that we've got? For sure. Why not? I mean, the thing about it is, is like experience doesn't mean 29, 30, 31 necessarily. Doesn't have to, no. Look Does, at Trussard, for Yeah, example. exactly. You know, or, or um, you know, even one of the players that we are being heavily linked with um, is Declan Rice. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have looked this up before I started, but I wasn't quite expecting to go here. But I mean, when when you think about how many first team games Declan Rice has played at, at 24 years of age, 24 is, is relatively experienced uh, stats by 200 club. Premier League games. 239 first team appearances for West Ham. Yeah. There's loads of experience, right? So it's about finding the uh, the balance between those young players. Um, uh, and the reality is that the better you get, the more difficult it is for young, young players to come through, for your 18, 19, 20-year-olds to break through. It becomes really hard unless they're really, really good. Um, but I think people, when they think about experience, go, well, "Yeah, we've got to, you know, we've got to sign somebody who's twenty nine, thirty, or they have a, they have an issue maybe with signing somebody who's twenty nine, thirty to give you that experience." When in reality, twenty five, twenty six can give you that experience. Twenty four, twenty five, twenty six can give you that experience as well. And I think that will be part of of how we recruit this summer. That there will be some young players and young talent who can grow and develop and who have potential and who could blossom under the the manager and the coaching staff but also you need some you need some ready-made tools don't you to deal with increased expectations next season in the Premier League and also the the challenge of Champions League football on top of that plus the cups you know they they are going to have to um, spread it around a bit i think yeah, and, and you know what? There are a couple of spots in the squad where I could really make my peace with a more experienced player coming in. And, you know, like you say, Jesus and Zinchenko, they are in their mid-20s and they brought experience. It doesn't have to be someone who's 30 or so. But, you know, if I think, well, goalkeeper, for example, going to have a European campaign, will we want a senior third-choice goalkeeper rather than, you know, a, an academy player? Mm. If so, If it's someone who's been around the block and knows the trade, knows the game, can be a mentor to the other goalkeepers we have. I'd be very comfortable with that. Even at centre-half, if you're looking for cover, right-sided centre-half maybe, if it's someone who's kind of been there and done that, we've got a very young group, Saliba, Gabriel and Kivior. I wouldn't mind someone who's played a few hundred games of football Mm. um, coming in and sort of supplementing that group and being a kind of coach mentor figure in in the way that someone like Shaka has been in the midfield yes uh I, I think there is room for that and I think we've seen a value and a benefit for that and we've also given ourselves that luxury now by having such a young squad you know not every signing we make has to have 
a big resale value or whatever, we can afford to kind of here and there yeah. nip and tuck accordingly and, and have a good balance of ages across the screen. Yeah, I mean, you can you can the idea of resale value is obviously something people talk about a lot, but what is the value of bringing in a player who for two or three seasons helps you increase your level and get to, uh, you know, get maybe over the finishing line, whatever it might be, even if you don't sell him for a lot of money, or even if he leaves for free, the benefit of the transfer is that he gives you uh, deliverables on the pitch, you know? Um, let me ask you this one. It comes from Gunranjan. It sort of ties into what we were talking about in the in the first half. Um, uh, maybe I've got another little question about this as well. He says, or they say, is it time now that fans stop being afraid of any opponent or ground? This team does not seem to be afraid of anyone. They've shown it time and again. I loved it today when Xhaka uh, did shithousery and time-wasting, and even if that incensed Newcastle players and supporters, we were able to control them well. Then it reminded me of Liverpool, where a lot of fans, including me, blame Xhaka for turning the tide. It made me realise that I was wrong. We should not be afraid of the Anfield factor or anything like that, and just trust this group and embrace the shithousery, because that's what other teams are trying to do as well when they come to our ground. I think that the mental strength we show on the road away from home is really commendable. It's very difficult to go away from home in the Premier League and win games. And I think there's a, a number of personalities within this squad who relish that. And, you know, you get players who like their home players, you know, they're brilliant when they're in front of their own fans on a Saturday, but they go away and never quite the same. And I think Arsenal are blessed with a number of players who seem to really thrive in that challenging atmosphere. Um, so I think, yes, we should approach pretty much every game without fear. And I think if there is an exception, you know, I, I sort of joked about it in part one, but if there is something that is a, a ground where we do go with some trepidation, maybe it is still Man City. You know, that feels like the one place to me where we have sort of a hurdle to overcome psychologically. And that's the, maybe the one opponent that we've not mm. conquered of late. And I think until we do, that sort of little hoodoo will, will always be there. I, I feel like that's more of a quality slash technical issue than any sense that this is a... a like, I don't think Man City is... Well, that's the, a big part of it, for sure. Yeah, I don't think yeah. Man City is the most vociferous or difficult atmosphere Certainly that you're going to play against because, you know, like 20% of their stadium's fucking empty most of the time. Um, I mean, what do you make of the the embracing of of the dark arts? I had a question. I know I had a question. So let me just see if I can find it here. Maybe it was off Twitter. Uh, boom, 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 boom. Yes, it comes from the Arsenal Therapy podcast called Arse Therapy Pod, which I'm sure uh, draws in some uh, listeners who are ultimately disappointed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. He says, the dark arts were on full display during large parts of the first and second half. As Arsenal fans, were often critical of teams uh, who stoop to that level. Is it time we accept this is part of the game and teams are allowed to be ugly when necessary? It is part of the game until the football authorities, you know, find a way to tackle the problem. I think it is an issue, actually, in the Premier League, the time-wasting, particularly with goalkeepers. Um, 
it's something I think we've probably suffered from more than we've gained from uh, this season. And I think, you know, we, sh- we have to exploit the parameters as they exist to our benefit. Uh, it's not incumbent on Arsenal to kind of take any sort of moral high ground here. It's about winning football matches. Mm. Um, and when it's you, when it's your team doing it, it's quite enjoyable, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I think that's the reality. Winding somebody up, seeing them get frustrated, eating up the clock. I think the away fans probably loved every single second. I doubt, doubt they minded at all that they didn't get a full 90 minutes of ball in play. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think they were fine with that. But yeah, it, I, I am curious to see how football addresses it. You know, whether they go or trial at least a kind of stop clock. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like that can't be too far away because more and more people are talking about well, it. I mean, just going back to the referees display, I mean, do you think there was an element of this is the Premier League, it's a physical league, this is the way we play football in England, battling and running and, you know, using your strength, you know, uh, physical strength. As as well, a, exactly. Some. You know, is, is there an element of not necessarily that being an edict to this referee before the game, but we know all about the, the, the let it flow thing, which was doing the rounds in, in certainly the first half of the season. Mm. I think... Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all those things and it's just decisions for a home crowd as Mm. well. All these psychological factors contribute. Um, And I do think there is a kind of latent feeling of, well, Arsenal are a bit soft. I still think that exists. I think it takes decades for those kinds of perceptions to change. Um, So maybe, you know, that, that plays into it as well. But ultimately, in the same way that we're criticizing the referee for... Uh, you know, not coming down hard enough on some of these Newcastle challenges. Newcastle fans shouldn't be angry with Arsenal. They should be angry with the officials. They're in complete control of the timekeeping. Uh, they have the authority to punish a player for time-wasting if they see fit. Mm-hmm. They choose not to. That is their problem. Um, yeah. And it, it is something for the refereeing bodies to discuss and address. But while the state of the game is as it is, Arsenal should absolutely be doing the same thing as everybody else. For sure. I mean, look, look, teams are always going to try and find whatever bit of advantage they can get in any circumstance. This is a top-level sport where the difference between teams or, or clubs is often, you know, minor percentages, right? So if there's anything you can exploit to get an advantage on the day, why wouldn't you do it? Particularly if everybody else is doing it. I think you said in the first half, if you can't beat them, join them. Mm. You know, if you can't beat them and you don't join them, you're a fucking idiot, basically. Yeah. So, you know, that that's just the way it's going to work. Would it be better if football was completely pure and, you know, everyone played to the letter of the law and all the rest no. of it? No, it wouldn't. It'd be fucking <laughs> terrible. It would be terrible. Like, winding people up, being stronger, sly fouls, niggling, all that kind of stuff is part and parcel of the game, whether you're playing Sunday League in a park, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning, hung over to bits, or whether you're playing Premier League football, it is intrinsic to the very fabric of the game as players and as clubs and, you know, as people watching as fans. You know, it's amazing when your team is on the right end of it. It's so annoying when your team is on the wrong end of it. We were on the wrong end of it in January against Newcastle. 
and we were on the right end of it, and they deserved every bit of it yesterday because of what they did in January. Two wrongs don't make a right, all that kind of stuff, but, you know, fuck that. This is the way you have to operate. And the difference, by the way, between those two games, between the two teams, is that we were protecting a lead rather than defending a draw. Yes. And I think there's more pride to be taken in that. For sure. I had a few questions about Thomas Partey's exclusion. Nick Aylwood on Twitter said, is it significant that Partey hasn't started the last two games? I think we all expected a departure in midfield this summer with Emil Smith-Rowe being a lot of people's guesses. But could it in fact be Thomas Partey headed for the chop? And we had, you know, a few well, questions like that. I saw a lot of questions like that, all right. I mean, I, I, what did I text you before the game about that decision, about it being interesting? Um, uh, you said Partey's definitely leaving. Don't mention it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Jesus. Oops. Spoiler alert. No. Uh, yeah, you just said it was an interesting call, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and we talked cool. about it from, and Arteta's explained it to an extent, but I think it is telling in a way that in a game where, you know, if it could be just down to form and we're putting two and two together and, and coming yeah. up with five. I mean, there's every possibility that that's what it is because that's the way we operate as football fans. You know, there is a short, not short-termism, but, but the things that happened most recently are the ones that influence the way we think about things. So it could be that, but I, you know, if you said it to me at the start of the season or even the start of January, when we brought Jorginho in, that Newcastle away, we were going to play Jorginho and not Partey, I would have been like, hmm. Yeah. You know, that Imagine is- if I'd said voluntarily in the run-in in games against Chelsea and Newcastle, we're not going to play Thomas Park. Yeah. I mean, and he played a really big, big part in, you know, the season that we've had. But his form has has dipped. No two ways about it. Um, I do wonder if... I'm not sure. It's too difficult to say, does this mean the beginning of the end for Thomas Partey? I, you know... But I do wonder if it might give Mikel Arteta an idea of life without Partey. Do you know what I mean? Or life, you know, that there are alternatives to the way that we've played. Because whenever Partey's been fit or even 70% fit, he's played. Not always to our benefit. Um, and some of that is because we don't really have the the choice or the depth to deal without him. But what Jorginho showed yesterday... Um, and what a summer signing might do for this team uh, when we go into next season. You know, I don't think Partey's position as a nailed-on starter is anywhere near as close as it was. No, and to be fair, in the January transfer window, Arsenal were out there trying to spend 70, 80 million on a central midfield player to play in that position. So Mm. I don't think it's an entirely new thing that the club are trying to get themselves or moving towards a position where they're not as reliant on Thomas Partey as they have been. Sure. Um, And also, I I don't want to rewrite history. At at times this season, he's been the best midfielder in the league. Um, Yeah. You know, there were periods where he was genuinely outstanding and you were looking at thinking there's no one else in world football who can come in and do this job. I sort of wonder if Arsenal have reached that conclusion too. There is kind of no one else in world football who can do precisely that job or very, very few. And therefore... You've got to do it differently. You've got to do it differently. You've got to evolve the team to a place where you don't have that 
single point of failure. You know, mm. you you try and structure things in a way which you're not quite so dependent or reliant on a player who whose form fluctuates and is vulnerable to injury. And yeah. I think, you know, putting Ben White in at right back, putting Zinchenko in at left back were steps in that direction. Adding other deep playmakers in the team to help us get out from the back other than just everything going through Partey all the time. Mm. Um, Jorginho shows we can do it with a different type in there. I, I think no one is under any illusions about Jorginho being the long-term answer. No. Uh, and, you know, I don't think Arsenal believe that either. I think I think a player is going to come in in the summer. Declan Rice was outstanding, by the way, yesterday for West Ham in their win over Manchester good, United. Yeah. Um, Not as good as David De Gea, but um, you're no, close. Yeah, you know, shout out David De Gea for his services to the cause. But <laughs> I think, would that precipitate a Partey departure? Maybe you need both for your first season back in the Champions League. Yeah, you know, it's I, not- I, I kind of feel that way. I, I just feel it's more the case that we're trying to get to a place where we're not as reliant on him, which given some of the physical problems he's suffered, is smart. Yeah, particularly as he's a- ageing, you know, yeah. you might want to uh, lessen the burden on him, which allows him to then be possibly, a, you know, a player who, who contributes, um, you know, throughout the season. Um, so there you go. Um, let me ask you this one. We had a couple like this. AFC, who's at 102 AFC on Twitter, uh, says, Goodly morning, gents. Do either of you buy into the narrative that we would still be top of the league Have we started Kivior sooner? And Bogan, who's at Bogan uh, underscore N5, says, should we be praising Arteta for bringing in Kivior or upset, angry, remorseful he didn't do it sooner? And we had a load of questions a like that. A lot of questions like that, yeah. <sighs> tricky one. Really tricky one, because I don't remember anyone calling for Kivior to come in when Saliba first got injured, mm. really. There were a few people, and I'm sure they'll... Um, let me know. But Kimio had played against Sporting and been very unconvincing in the away leg. I don't know if you remember. There was he that did, goal yeah, he where did, yeah. he got in a mix-up with Matt Turner from a corner. And then he came on at Anfield even after that and uh, in very trying circumstances, but it wasn't a hugely convincing cameo. Mm. So I, I don't think, and I gather as well, he also went away with Poland around that time and didn't play particularly well at international level. Now, Italy wasn't playing club football, so he probably was very rusty. Um, with hindsight, now you look at it and go, well, yeah, maybe we should have played Kirill, but it would have been a huge gamble, I think, personally, at that, at, at that time to drop him straight in with what we'd seen of him. Um, but uh, yeah, others will disagree. I know there's a school of thought that Arteta maybe doesn't learn quickly enough or, or, or diverge from his initial plan quickly enough. What do you think? I mean, it's impossible to know 100%, really. I, I'm still not convinced we've seen him hugely... Tested, tested defensively. Now, I think, I think, I will state. I, I thought he was impressive against Chelsea. I 
Thought it was good yesterday. Uh, impressive again against Newcastle in... I thought his ability on the ball yesterday was really good. Uh, yeah, and what, do you know what's interesting, actually, is that the left-footedness opened up, like, some different angles. Yeah. You know, if a right-back plays a ball inside to uh, his centre-back and that centre-back's left-footed, if they're running back towards their own goal, it's kind of easier for them to... Spread it, play yeah. Pass through the lines in some ways. For sure. So I, I think he's been impressive. It's just sort of impossible to know. And I, I would drive myself mad thinking, like, would it have been different if we'd played Kivior? Um, what I, th- I think we probably have to remember is that Arteta is often quite cautious with players that haven't made their breakthrough yet or haven't come through, that he wants to be sure that they're completely ready. Maybe it was a case that his hand was forced a little bit of late because of of the defensive issues that we had. He had to try something else. And this was literally the only other thing he could try, was to play Kivior at centre-half, or it was to like move Ben White back into the middle and have a hodgepodge solution at right-back. And even the- this is not ideal, you know. No. This is not... Arteta's preference to have Kibio in that position. No, it's, and I, it's not. I think, as well, you make a good point. You know, he did have a slightly tricky start. And what if he had come in before he was ready and been bad? Is, do you run the risk of killing a player's Arsenal career before it's even got started? Yeah, and I think the maybe it's easy to lose sight of, but we played very well against Liverpool for 40-odd minutes. And we played very well against West Ham. And I know we had defensive issues, but there were other things that went on in those games that were beyond, let's say, the back four and, um, you know, the goals that we conceded. Uh, You know, I think you could look at collective issues as well as individual ones. So my my gut feeling right now is that I'm glad Kivior has come in and done well because it, it... he did have a difficult start to his Arsenal career. It was a bit unconvincing, and I wasn't sure what we were going to get from him this season. Like, I had faith yeah. that we'd spent the money on him in um, in the belief that he could be a good player for us, but I wasn't sure what we were going to get from him this season. So I'm just glad that he's come in. He's done well, looks assured. He's quick, good in the air, good on the ball. You know, this could be a really good player for us going forward, and there are probably going to be things at the end of this season where we look back and we could say, oh, God, if only, if, if mm, only. There's going to be a few moments. There's right, going to be a sure. few moments like that. And I'm not necessarily sure that Kivior coming in as a left-footed center have to play on the right side of the defense is going to be top of that list. No. You know, that's no. just... Just and I, anyway, I'll I be see. filing those moments away in the drawer in my brain. Um, Very good. Keep that drawer locked. Mental health. Go what on. about this? Uh, I found thought this was a good suggestion. Geo Bam said, "Goodly morning." Uh, is Ramsdale's away form purely just motivation from the opposition fans? If so, let's move the away section at the Emirates to have the away fans behind each goal. <laughs> there was another question like that uh, as well from Emil Smith, row your boat. There's a theory that Ramsdale is a better keeper away from home than he is at the Emirates. Sunday was his 10th away clean sheet where he's only managed three at home, if I recall correctly. Do you subscribe to this theory? And if so, why do you think it is? Well, I, I, I think it's less. I, I mean, I know it helps him. You know, he's another who said, Mm. Yesterday, he enjoyed the atmosphere. Um, but I think 
it's more about the team than it is about him. Personally. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think that we are maybe a bit more focused, more switched on defensively away from home, and maybe a bit more open and cavalier at home. Um, and generally, it doesn't cost us too dear because we win most of those games. Arsenal have the best away record in the Premier League. Wow. Um, we've conceded 17 goals away, 22 goals at home. City still have a couple of games um, to go on us, but we have the most points away from home this league. So I think it is tied in with how good the team has been away from home. And maybe at home there is a, I don't want to say complacency or, or a sense of comfort or whatever it is, but clearly we, we've had difficult moments at home this season that you know you, you would say we should do better with. Yeah, and listen, the clean sheet we got last night was well overdue. Uh, it's been quite some time since our last. I think the Leicester game was our last clean sheet, um, which may have been February. I don't know. I think it was Fulham. Could have been oh, the Fulham, Fulham. Sorry, game. you're right. Yeah. Forgive me. But um, still, a good few games in between, and uh, you know, we've made a point of saying here we're not defending well enough, conceding too many goals. I, I, we had a couple of questions over the past couple of weeks about Ramsdale and about his form and performances, which um, I, I mean, I guess it's inevitable when you make a mistake like he did against Southampton that people are going to query you and question you. But I think he's had a very strong season. And, you know, if you, with the exception of maybe Liverpool, because they've got Alisson, who is probably the best in the world, in my opinion, all the big clubs this summer when the transfer market opens, are having conversations with, you know, agents and sporting directors saying, can we get a Ramsdale? Like that that's the kind of thing clubs are saying because you've got a player there that costs thirty million pounds, which I think looks very, very fair at this point in time. Yeah. Which did not at the time, who takes up a homegrown spot in the squad, but is also a good goalkeeper. Um, can play with his feet and solves the problem not for one or two years, but five to ten. And Manchester United, uh, Spurs, Chelsea, they're all looking for a player like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's done well and I think he was excellent at Newcastle. We had many questions about Kieran Tierney. Uh, yeah. So here's one from the Discord from Ginger Gooner, who says, Goodly fucking morning, gents. Goodly fucking morning to you too. He said, do we need to do whatever it takes to keep Tierney? Hard to find a better backup left back. I thought it was great. I thought it was great at Newcastle. You know, you sort of wonder when all these squad players will get their moment. And I'm sure he'd like a, a more significant moment than that in some respects. But he really, really helped us out. Um, I thought he was very good. Uh, listen, it would be great to keep him, but I don't think they'll keep an unhappy player. And so that will be ultimately what decides it. And, you know, he really hasn't played a lot of football. And I just think it's not going to be enough to persuade him that his future is at Arsenal. Yeah, I, I think that is the key that he wants to play and um, at the moment he's not playing as much as he would like. I think there's probably a decision for Mikel Arteta to make ahead of the game uh, against Brighton. Certainly something to think about. 
Um, that balance between what Sinchenko gives us in midfield and and in possession versus what um, the difficulties he's he's having at this moment in time from a defensive point of view. We talk about Thomas Partey losing form, which I think is perfectly normal. We have to talk about Sinchenko losing mm-hmm. defensive form. Like we know and knew that this wasn't necessarily the strongest part of his game, but throughout this season, I think he's done pretty well until. The last four or five weeks where there have been just some slips and lapses and things like that, which have been a bit costly. So I think that is something that Mikel Arteta is going to have to think about uh, going into our next game. I'm I'm reminded of something you said Uh-oh. a good few weeks ago now um, when we were talking about, you know, what we might do in the summer and how we might cover the left back position. Mm-hmm. I think you said it wouldn't surprise you if Arsenal went out and bought another right back. Oh, yeah. And you could use Tommy Asu or Kivior Mm -hmm. as a left back. Mm -hmm. Does that still make sense to you rather than going out and having to buy a dedicated backup left back who, you know, again, if he's a player who wants to play, is going to end up being unhappy um, I mean, you yeah, could buy somebody I, who could come in and do better than Zinchenko, obviously, and make that position his own, but but that is the consideration, isn't it? Yeah, I think that does make quite a lot of sense. I, I've been intrigued to see um, Kivior in that position. You know, Man City have used uh, the kind of four centre-back model at times this season with Nathan Ake playing there. Um, and, and, you know, that's something we could potentially do with Kirill in future. I, th- I also think Tommy Asu is actually a really natural backup for Zinchenko in that, A, he can do the kind of uh, coming inside, playing in midfield, but B, he also is a better defender. So if you're in a position like we were at Newcastle yesterday and Zinchenko's getting roasted and you mm. think we need some security, I would feel very comfortable with Tommy Asu being that substitute who comes on and shores things up on the left-hand side. Me too. Um, And then, yeah, maybe someone else can come in on the right. I think think that could be a way that we solve it. Um, Because we could do with another... Yeah, we certainly could do with another fullback, but there's enough flexibility... That you know, it could be one that plays on either side potentially. Yeah, and I say that because I saw links again to the Spanish guy Fresneda. Fresneda, yeah, yeah, still doing well. Um, I think there'll be competition for him in the summer, but you know, he's a player Arsenal know really well, and and maybe that would be a, a way of doing it. I think Ben White's, you know, he's staying at right back now, isn't he? I think, yeah. um, for all intents and purposes, he is the right back. You've got Tommy Asu. I mean, I suppose one question is how long will Tommy Asu be out? That's maybe a consideration in all this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that the way they described the injury was different from El Nenny's. Yeah. Because I think they said they expect him back for pre-season. So hopefully. Okay. okay. Well, that would, be, that would be a great sign. But yeah, as for Tierney, I just, my feeling is that decision's probably been made. Uh, and I say that meaning by Kieran Tierney and by yes. people around him. I think I think he wants to play more football than he's going to play for Arsenal. So I think we'd be fighting a losing battle resisting that, really. And who knows? Maybe he'll be at St. James's Park next season. Mm. 
Peter Hust asks, would this qualify as one of Amy Lawrence's fuck-off wins? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, reminiscent in some respects, I know we beat Chelsea in the game before, but of going to Stamford Bridge last season and winning there and, you know, um, breathing life into the campaign at the late stage... Uh, I think that was a bit of a fuck-off win. And this one, I think even more so, given yeah. the form Newcastle have been in and their position in the table. Yeah, uh, it's a really outstanding result. It is. We beat the Magpies. We beat the Magpies. Fuck Magpies forever, Andrew. Fuck Magpies forever. And I think we may have to uh, play out the show with that particular ditty. Please, please. Um, but I was hoping we would get a win in this game for obvious reasons. One, we needed the points. Two... Alan Shearer stole my fucking golf clubs. Yeah. But three, I got an email in March from Thomas Anderson. Okay. Who gave me a story, a magpie fact. Well, it's not a magpie fact. It's a magpie saga from his home country of Sweden from December 2022. The headline says, shot a mailbox to pieces blames the magpies and it goes on to say an 83 year old man is charged with firing his shotgun at a mailbox in a residential area the man confesses but blames it all on the fact that he had been annoyed by the local magpies in august one of the neighbors came home and discovered his mailbox which was shattered by gunshots the police were contacted and the 83-year-old man was accused and confessed on the spot. He said that he had long been annoyed by how the magpies had messed up his porch and eaten his apples. The last straw was when a magpie stole a baby bird right in front of his eyes. Right. Cannibal bastard. Get the shotgun. He walked in, took his shotgun, and fired. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he missed the magpie, but not the mailbox. He's now charged with vandalism. He had a license for several guns, but now they've been confiscated by the police. Wow. I think this is inevitable, Andrew, that as the magpie's evil influence grows, mm. there are going to be these vigilante acts, people seeking justice. Um, he tried to take, you know, matters into his, his own, own hands. hands. Yeah. Drive, uh, that's what, magpies drive people to vigilantism. I was going to say, I'm worried because I've seen that uh, the magpies have made, is it a new nest in your garden? They have. Yeah, there's a tree out the back where where as soon as the tree came into bloom or leafed up, whatever you call it, whatever the technical term is, they blossomed. blossomed that's it. They, they, they fashioned a nest up there because we were watching it and now there's a nest and I'm not sure if there are eggs in the nest but certainly there is a big nest and the the big boy magpie is coming in to deliver sticks and worms and shit to mrs magpie so i can't in good conscience set fire to the tree the way some people might want me to um but it is they are very annoying and lana the german shepherd really dislikes magpies if she had a shotgun um those guys would be in big trouble so for your own sake andrew hide your shotgun away Put it somewhere where Lana you can't, can't have it. easy access to it, and certainly where Lana can't get hold of it. Yeah, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll put it away in the cupboard for sure. 
under the sink somewhere where she will never find it. She'll never find it. But I think that just goes to show us that magpies on the football pitch and off the football pitch are, are a menace. And we should therefore celebrate the defeating of the magpies yesterday with, with some gusto. How about you? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. We will leave it there um, for today. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll have some stuff for you on Patreon, of course, and not least the 30 a little bit later today, looking back on all the weekend's Premier League action. So please do join us for that. We will play out with Fuck Magpies Forever because, well, fuck Magpies Forever. Until the next one, folks, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. I want to thank Johnny who's at Fruit All Sorts on Twitter, who wrote these lyrics and sent them in. And I want to thank a YouTube channel called Carto Guitar, from which I stole the backing track. As I walk these streets alone, through this borough I call home, down my spine I feel a shiver, there should be more hens on the river, through the turnstiles of the angel, I think I'm safe at last, but I hear the wings are beating, and they're beating fucking fast. Seek refuge in all the buildings and the offie on the corner. My knowledge is the logical and the prefix is awning. A wren, a hawk, a blue tit, a watching from the side. Seeking solace from their sorrows, sheltering in a bird hide. Through the madness in the market, people looking to the skies. Watch what you are doing, cause they'll pick out your eyes. Little Rosie approaches one, she doesn't have a clue. That his heart is as black as his feathers and his shoes Down towards the Emirates I spot a ticket out Try giving him a warning by shouting Mate watch out! From the Thornhill to the Hemi I know what the people lack Everyone will be running scared Unless they've got some magpie facts Fuck magpies forever Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.